what do I have to look forward to in the near future? And what should I be terrified is coming? Hello, welcome back. This is Writing in Real Life, a podcast about writing, publishing, marriage, and parenthood. I, of course, am Barry Liga, and with me is not Morgan Baden. Once again, we have a substitute for Morgan. Everybody, please join me in welcoming Sarah McLean. Sarah, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited and honored. Sarah, you are, just for those listeners who don't know who you are, which I can't imagine as many of them, but... You are a New York Times bestselling author. You are an award-winning author. You are what else are you? You are you are quite impressive. I wear pajamas most days to work. That, see, right there, that's the sign of success. <laughs> like Howard Hughes, right? Howard Hughes wore pajamas most of the yes, time. I'm, so I'm so similar to Howard. Do you Hughes. also so store your? You do you store your own urine in jars? Totally mental. There you go. There you go. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. Uh, so you are, thank you for being here, first of all. And, I'm so and excited to be here. I'm filling in for Morgan. This is where the magic happens. Yes, our, our luxurious podcast studio. It's amazing. It really is. I know. It's state of the art. There are a lot of Babysitter's Club books it's in here. state of the art. Yes, those are all mine. <laughs> <laughs> Longtime listeners in the show know I'm a huge fan of the Babysitter's Club. Yes. Are you a Christy or a Marianne or a Claudia or a... I, I, you know, I, I like, one? I like the one girl, Stacy. I like the one girl, the one who did the thing in the one book. That one she's, girl. <laughs> she's my favorite. She's my favorite. I see. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so you, you, uh, are known mostly for romance novels. Yes. Yes. We'll that just, is true. We'll just put that out there because we may talk about that a little bit. I write bit. kissing books. You write kissing and books. And also other things. Yes. But you're, you're, you have the greatest tagline I told you years ago when we first met and mm-hmm. became friends that... Your tagline on your website was the best, which is... I write books. There's smooching in them. That's just, the, like, right it's there. It's just... Factual. Like, it's just perfect. <laughs> it sums up everything. I mean, it's just perfect. It's don't absolute. come Don't come at me, bros. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> I told you straight up. Right, exactly. You read this book. You find smooching in there. Don't complain. Exactly. Don't complain, because you were warned. Also, why would you complain about that? Smooching is awesome. Smooching is awesome. We can all get behind smooching. I... I Maybe not Ted Cruz. I suspect he is anti-smooching. <laughs> yeah, he seems like not a very I, good I, smoocher. Yeah, also. I think he probably has never smooched, or if he did, it went horribly wrong. And that could expl- that could be the secret origin of Ted Cruz. <laughs> he smooched, it went wrong, and he and forsook all humanity it, it after that. Ted Cruz, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but in addition to being a fabulous author, you are also a wife and a mother. I am both of those things. Yes, which so you fit perfectly into this show, and does, and nobody knows why you and I know each other. Well, that's what I was going to say. You and Morgan, right? And Leia and I know each other, right? I was going to say, in addition to all of that, because we had Libba as a guest on the show once, and Libba too is a best-selling author and an award-winning Libba's author and a mother fancy. and a wife. So you know, so big deal, right? Yeah, but I have, I'm much. But more. but you. You are the whole reason this podcast exists. I am. Without you, me, nothing. This whole magnificent studio. This whole exist. studio wouldn't even be here. Because... I'm your creator. Because You are. You, <laughs> you introduced me to Morgan. I did? Yeah. Well, or potentially I introduced Morgan to you. Yeah, well. I think... But I'm here I and she's not. Morgan in me, though. Really? I think so. It's possible. Huh. We've known each other... A long time. Yeah. I mean, since before I moved to New York. Oh, since I was very, very young. Yeah. I mean, you were like, like a preteen. You were like 15. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I was like 37. <laughs> yes. So... At least 
Mentally. <laughs> no, I'm about I'm about fifteen mentally. I'm still every every year I get older physically, but the the psychological and emotional age stays roughly around fifteen. Nice. Um, which is just great for Morgan, I guarantee you. Um, but no, yeah, I did. So you I, introduced us. I am responsible for for you. So you apologies, listeners. Possibly, <laughs> possibly. Um, but you did more than that. I mean, you 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 didn't just introduce us. You then went ahead and married us. I did. I'm I am very you like full service. You like full service. You don't you don't mess around. I had nothing to do with Leia, though. I'd like to just put that <laughs> put out that there. out there. <laughs> Other than introducing us Other and than, making you know, it possible, right? But it is funny because you know I remember um, shortly after she was born, shortly after Morgan went back to work, and I was suddenly stay at home dad. Uh, I went and met you at a coffee shop nearby because we live close by we should we mention do. we live like we live three blocks, like three blocks away from each other and i went and visited you at a coffee shop one day while you were writing and i brought leia in her stroller and it was just you and me in the coffee shop basically and of course the barista and you saw her and you said to her i made you <laughs> and the barista gave us a look like wait what yeah, how is this <laughs> so working? that was that was interesting yeah yeah, I'm really very. You are my, possibly my greatest accomplishment. I'm well, very, very proud of you know, the fact I always, that I, I made you. I always tell people that you know I never, I couldn't understand why you were so excited to be putting us together, and then I realized it's because you're a romance novelist, and you were like, I did it in real life. Yeah, like seriously. I mean, suck come it, on. everyone. Yeah, seriously. I mean, come on. There, you know, like Nora <laughs> Roberts. Has she done it in real life? No. Who knows? No. no. I mean. Maybe, but uh, it's probably not as good you know, as you know. What, what's your face? The the shades of gray lady. Has she done it in real life? The no. shades of gray. Lady. I don't know her name. That's fine. I don't know her. She's the shades Everybody of gray lady. Everybody who's listening knows her name, Barry. So it's fine. That's fine. They they can email us <laughs> exactly. and tell me her name. I don't care what her name is. She's the shades of gray lady. She hasn't done this in real life. Well, we don't know that, but she certainly hasn't made you guys. Right. That's none really, of them. Like, none of them have done this. I think none we're of them really talking this. about caliber. Right. I mean, when right. I do it, it's tremendously powerful. Sure. When other people do it, I mean, it could end terribly. It probably ends horribly. Right. It ends in, in... Ted Cruz. <laughs> yes, probably. We, we are losing a lot of listeners. <laughs> anyway, so so I wanted to talk about about uh, parenting and marriage quickly. So you have, <laughs> just, you, just quick. quickly, you have a little one. I do. Who was born about 10 months before Leia. Sure. She so, was born. She just turned two. Yeah. So, yeah. so, you know, when Libba was here, we talked about the far future because her child is heading off to college. Yeah, soon. that sounds awesome. That's, that's just <laughs> sounds amazing. Incalculably <laughs> weird. But you are just a little bit ahead of me. Mm-hmm. So, so I think you're a little more helpful in that regard. So, yeah. what do I have to look forward to in the near future? And what should I be terrified is coming? V turned two in December. And. There are a couple things that are really awesome. Like she now talks, which is terrific, and okay. she's able to yeah. I'm waiting for that articulate thought, which yeah. is inter- I mean, let's be clear, it's not it's baby tremendously thought. interesting thought. But she's it's- not like writing Areopagitica or anything. Exactly. Yeah. But the other day, you know, she she told me that she walked into the room holding my husband's shirt and she said daddy red shirt and it was in fact a red shirt that belongs to daddy and of course i thought so wait he's gonna die on star trek (laughs) (laughs) exactly um but like today or you know this week she's been she was crying at one point this week and she said um she said v sad and i was like oh this is really interesting like now she's starting to think of she's she's starting to come up with conceptual thought yeah um which is cool yeah at the same time she's kind of a jerk (laughs) (laughs) she's like 
highly manipulative. No, ah. I mean she's definitely figured out that. And I mean, I mean, look, I love her desperately, but like. You know, last weekend we had a dinner party, and I thought, oh, you know, we'll shoot one of the people who, who, one of the couples that was coming, our couples, is a couple that she really, really likes. And um, they came in, and it was right before before she was going to bed, and I thought, oh, well, she can just say hi and then go to sleep. You know, she's been sleep trained for, since she was 11 weeks old. Yeah. You know, uh, she hasn't seen eight o'clock since she was 11 weeks old right? and it was seven and they came in and she said hi and she was very sweet. And then, you know, we whisked her off to bed and she went bananas. She knew there was somebody out there. Yeah. Cause she understood like you right. guys are having fun out there with my friends right? and, and I'm not out there. Right. And so she stayed up until, you know, we ended up having to get her cause she was just screaming bloody murder in there. Wow. For a long time. And so we went in finally and got her and she stayed up till 1030. And now every night, this was our mistake. Every night this week, she's been just kind of a jerk about going to bed. Like, you know, can I have milk? Can I have water? Can you, you know, Eric sings Tura Laura, this like little Irish lullaby to her. And it's maybe 30 seconds long. And when I sing to her, I sing her sweet baby James, which is James Taylor and more like three minutes. And now she knows that if she asks her sweet baby James, she gets a longer Period. You know, she's kind of a jerk. Yeah. But in the same sense, you know, nobody likes to be told no. Right. So, wow, are they loud at two. (laughs) (laughs) They've really developed the lung power at that point. And I really feel like my neighbors probably think we're just torturing her half the time. Yeah, we went through something. We we went, we definitely went through something like that. We went through, you know, you talk about sleep training. Listeners to the show know that we went through sleep training um, several times with Leia. Because it turns out, you know, they don't tell you this at the doctor's office when they tell you how to sleep train, but apparently there's a small percentage of children where it doesn't take at first. And after a couple of weeks, you have to do it again. And then, and then after another couple of weeks, you have to do it again. Mm -hmm. So we had to sleep train like three times. Mm -hmm. And the first time we did it, it took like a week and a half and it's only supposed to take a couple nights. But again, like we rolled the dice and got lucky and got, you know, one of these kids where it doesn't take right away. And yeah, we were, we were like, oh my God, like the neighbors must think we are like setting fire to her toes every Mm -hmm. night because every night it was screaming bloody murder in that, in that other room, in that crib for, you know, an hour, hour and a half, two hours. I mean, one night she went three hours before she finally just conked out and it's like, and this happened multiple times, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it's not fun. I mean, I do think in New York. The benefit of living in New York City is that everybody has something that's going on in their apartment that they're afraid someone else is hearing. Well, that's true. That's true. You know, like, that is the benefit of living in New York is that... Everybody hears that. Everybody's doing something. All right. So now we've dispensed with the parenting part of this. Yeah. Two is fun, but, you know. Yeah. All right. So now I I have things to look forward to, but I also... She's apparently going to become a jerk, so... All right. (laughs) Someday V will listen to this and go... I need therapy because you said I was a jerk. I, I, I know. This and is what she'll I'm, say that and I'll say you're still a jerk. This is what this is what I'm worried about is that someday Leia is going to stumble upon these podcasts <laughs> where I said some fairly uncharitable things early on when, you know, she was not sleeping. And, Don't worry uh, about it. She'll yeah. need therapy for something. That's true. That's, so and that's what I keep telling people. Your kid is going to be screwed up no matter what. So right. you might as well pick what they're going to be screwed up about. Also, it's a fact that V is sometimes a jerk. <laughs> So, so you're, you're saying the I truth, stand by it. You're saying the truth is an affirmative defense <laughs> in this case. 
Let's uh, let, let's talk about writing and publishing. Oh, let's sure. Because you you are very plugged in. I feel I feel like you are you like just tweet a a massive unending stream of interesting things about publishing and writing. Well, I apologize for those of you who follow me, and sometimes I do rant. Well, so. no, you also epically rant at times, which is always I have a amusing. Very emotional. Uh, I have an emotional connection to the etymology of swear words. Yeah. Oh, swear words are awesome. um, That is a regular ranting on my Twitter feed. So if you're interested in swear words, but there, there are, there are days where Morgan, (laughs) Morgan will come home from work and I will say, Sarah's having a day on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) You should check Sarah's Twitter feed because she's having a day. Um, But uh, so, so what, what is your feeling about publishing right now? Bearing in mind that, that's you know, just a minor. Well, question. no, no, no. Hang on, hang on. I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna explicate. I'm gonna explicate. Bearing in mind a couple of things. First of all, you know, I, I feel like, and we've talked about this in the past. Romance publishing um, is, is is only sort of superficially similar to the other sorts of publishing, and I, and I hate to be so generic as to say other sorts, but really, I really do feel like there's publishing. And then romance publishing is off to the side, it's a not case. not not to denigrate it or say that it, it no. it's 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 surplus or That's a sidekick, accurate. but it is a it's a whole different universe over mm-hmm. there. So I'm curious, you know, like right now the people I've been talking to in the publishing industry and in, in my publishing industry are very much looking around, going, "What the hell is happening?" Everybody is sort of like nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody. Everybody is afraid to try anything. Everybody is worried. Everybody's sales are down and nobody knows what to do or, the, and the people who do know what to do can't do it. Right. And so it's just, it feels like chaos. It, it, it feels like, you know, the, the last five minutes of a superhero movie where everybody's <laughs> running out of the buildings and the aliens are <laughs> knocking them down. And we're not sure if we're the heroes and, or the victims. Right. Yeah. We, we don't know. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, number one, your perspective as a putative outsider to that particular part of the industry. But number two, what's it like on the other side of the fence in romance? Is it similar? Is it better? Is it worse? What's going on? What do you think? Um, well, I think that the thing about romance, so for people who don't know anything about romance who are listeners, I'll just give you a very quick overview of why Barry thinks that romance is a different world. And it is a different world. Um, yeah, it's not just me thinking this. <laughs> no. So the romance, romance novels, which many people who don't know about romance novels will think of as those books that had Fabio on the cover in the 80s and 90s. And that is accurate, <laughs> although they no longer have Fabio on the cover. Um, they Is that when sales went up? <laughs> Romance, the first romance was written in 1972, yeah. and it birthed a genre that is uh, six, somewhere around 65% of the paperback fiction market. Yeah. Um, it's huge. I it's mean, people massive. need to understand. It's a people need to understand. It is a industry. massively huge, and it, is, it has such different characteristics romance, than, than other publishing. Yeah. Yeah. Romance readers read something like 10 to 12 books on average a month. Yep. They tend to read almost exclusively in genre. So it's right. like, you know, if you're a mystery reader or a sci-fi reader, it's a genre. Right. It's genre the, the, fiction. The close, yeah, I was going to say, the closest thing that you would have in an, in an other form of publishing would be something like mysteries or science fiction where people where people just just consume it constantly but it's nothing like sort of like there's a brand loyalty in romance Mm -hmm. like where people will be like i read harlequin romances i read avon i read read, you know there's you don't know your publisher 
most it's people, such inside yeah. baseball most yeah. of the time. Yep. Which publisher you're reading? Right. And at, in romance, you're absolutely you could, right. You could you could walk up to you could walk up to a hundred of my readers and say who published I Hunt Killers, and they would have no idea what you're talking about. Exactly. But, but if you wow. ask yeah. somebody who published Sarah's, you know, rules, who rule, publishes Sarah, McCormick, yeah, they know. They know. Um, so I would say that the biggest thing, so all of that is to say the thing about romance is that it's such a huge block of readers and it's kind of an underground block of readers in large part because it's, uh, almost exclusively women. Right. Um, and because of how voracious they are, um, typically the adage in, on the publishing side is as goes romance, so goes publishing. Right. So, um, we tend to be three or four years ahead of the curve. Right. Um, you know, romance invented the mass market essentially after Pulp Fiction. Um, you know, it was romance that made the mass market the sort of thing that you buy in your supermarket size book right. a popular item. Um, romance embraced the ebook long before. Long before. Yeah. Um, and we are all, I mean, romance is why my sales numbers are I sell, I outsell myself, e to print something like three or four to one. Really? Um, wow. On every book. So the, I mean, romance readers are just voracious. And this all goes back to just being voracious. Yeah. Um, we also embraced indie publishing. You know, we've been doing that for two or three years and, um, people are having tremendous success and we were all, we traditionally published romance writers were all just terrified of it. You know what we all felt like, you know, we need to self pub to, or, you know, we'll die on the vine. Right. And I think that fear still exists just as it, you know, I think, I think eBooks, um, I think ebooks are scary for your side. Still, that sort of self-publishing, indie publishing, small press publishing is is still a little scary um, in the in the mainstream in mainstream publishing. And I think that um, that's that's something that romance is coming around to in the sense of you know hybrid authorship and you know right. doing multiple things and and figuring out how we're going to keep being able to make money. You know as we move forward and, and readers have a shot, have a chance to pick, you know, what I refer to as their personal kink. Right. And I don't just mean that as like romance kink. I mean, you know, you might be into Dukes, you might be into billionaires, you might be into vampires and, um, you might be into something super weird and there's something for you. Like for example, a billionaire, a billionaire Duke vampire. I'm sure that exists. Somewhere. There you go. Somebody has written that. Go yeah. on Amazon and you'll find it. Just type billionaire Duke, Duke vampire. vampire. And I'm sure that's probably the title of the book. To be <laughs> fair. Probably is the title of the book. <laughs> that, 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 that is one thing about romance novels. Like they pretty much, the title tells you everything you need to know. The titles are rarely coy. Well, no. And that's, I mean, the, the anybody who's interested in packaging or marketing should really yeah. spend some time looking at romance novels. Oh, absolutely. Because... There's nobody does it. There's nowhere in publishing that does it better. It is amazing to me. You know, I was thinking about this today, earlier today, because I knew I was going to have you on the show. And unfortunately, I didn't have time to look it up. But when I was in college, I took a class on mass communication, which I thought was going to be something entirely different. It turned out to be about popular culture. And I remember the professor, the first day of class, said, you've heard the expression, there's no accounting for taste. In this class, we're going to try to account for taste. And we studied, you know, we read uh, Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And I remember, had a bright pink cover. We read a book that was basically, I think it was one of the first books written. This would have been in 89. And it was about why do women read romance novels? Mm -hmm. 
And it was eye-opening to me. Talking about reading the romance. It's Janice Radwell. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Reading the romance. That's, I remember, I couldn't remember, I could, I could picture the cover, but I couldn't see the title in my head. Um, and it was a really interesting book and very eye-opening for a very young... Very contentious in the industry. A young male who wanted to be a writer, you sure. know? Uh, and yeah, I mean, romance... I mean, I think the thing that, ama- that has amazed me most about romance, watching as an outsider, for the most part, um, is the way it has evolved. You know, I, I think the rap on romance that people who are not into it, it have is they tend to say, oh, it's always the same. It's always the same thing. And not like it. Like, like you said, there's billionaires, there's dukes, there's vampires. <laughs> you know, I'm sure there's, you know, you know, baseball romance, you know, for women who are into you that. Name it, Whatever it is. I mean, you, I remember you telling me once, uh, walking me through the, uh, what was it, the, the secret baby romance. Uh, secret trope. babies are very popular. Secret babies. I mean, it, it just, it keeps, it keeps creating its own subgenres and sub-subgenres and sub-sub-subgenres. Right. And, uh, and I should say, I mean, all genre, fi- the, the point of genre fiction in large part is that, you know, readers kind of know the roadmap, right? Right. We know the roadmap of a mystery. We know that it's going to get solved by the end. Right. Because if it isn't, it's not a a satisfying read. Right. And for romance, I mean, certainly the happily ever after is the critical piece of the puzzle. Um, So I think people who don't, who have no experience with romance often say, well, they're all the same because they all end. Like we know how it ends. Um, But for romance readers, it's really about the journey. Right. Um, and I think that's a, that's something that a lot of, that outsiders don't always understand. Yeah. Um, but it's a really power. I mean, look, of course I'm going to say this because I write it and I love <laughs> it and I've been reading it since I was 11, but, yeah. um, I think it's really powerful in large part because it tells women and, and men who read romance also that they can expect, they deserve better. Sure. In their life. Like they deserve partnership. They deserve satisfaction in all ways. They right. deserve um, empowerment, all these things are sort of written into the DNA of the romance novel. Um, and that kind of, I think the biggest criticism, the biggest criticism you hear from, from outside of romance is, well, it sets women up to have too high expectations of relationships. And Uh I would argue, why is that? Why is it high expectation to believe that you could have a partner who, um, respects, respects you. you, loves you, and then at the same time is happy to, you know, provide you with sexual pleasure. Right, right. So. Yeah, that that doesn't seem to be too much to ask in this life. No, it seems pretty Unless basic. you're Ted Cruz. <laughs> poor, poor Ted Cruz. That's the only time I will ever say that. I can't, I can't believe I just heard those words come out of your mouth. So, anyway. No, but he is probably a terrible lover. <laughs> well, we already discussed his smooching issues. Yeah. So... Um, <laughs> actually so, the whole field is probably pretty on both sides, probably terrible lovers. That's uh, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> and now you all have that in your head. <laughs> politicians in general. Yeah. See, there you go. Is there a lot of political romance? Like that's what we need. <laughs> actually, political romance is really un, it's uncommon. And I yeah. think that's because it's incendiary, right? Yeah. Although am I allowed to recommend books? Yeah, um, <laughs> of course we, we, we often recommend books. I actually books. just read a couple of months ago, this really terrific contemporary romance and it's, it is political in the sense that um, the hero is a female firefighter in Chicago, okay. um, and um, anybody who knows anything about firefighters knows that only like three and a half percent of firefighters are women. Yeah, and she's really she comes from an old firefighting family, and she's really rough and tumble, and like kind of crass and wonderful. Yeah, and the the hero is the mayor of Chicago. There you go. 
and like not corrupt, a decent oh, guy. Oh, definitely fiction. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like a really decent, cool guy who like has aspirations for much higher office. Right. Like it's clear in the text that he potentially wants to be president. Right. And she's like tattooed and crass and she yeah. like just is the worst. Like she is not first lady material. Right. And what I love about it is how conflict, like how much that is written into the conflict. Cool. The book is called playing with fire. And of course it is. Name. See, I mean, that's a great, of course. Name. Yeah. Like, if you had titled it anything but Playing With Fire, yeah. I, I would say that, that that's authorial malpractice. <laughs> it's true. So, Playing With Fire Playing by... Playing With Fire by Kate Meader, M-E-A-D-E-R. Okay. Um, and it's part of a series about other firefighters. There's, cool. like, a male-male romance in that series. There's we all will, sorts of cool stuff. We will put that in the show notes it's a great so book. that people can find that book. Yeah. And cool. if you're like me and, like, a huge West Wing fan and super politically nerdy, then... Yeah. Um, you'll really get, you'll get off on it. Yeah. Because there was no sex in the West Wing. No. Like, notoriously. And the Sorkin, one... Sorkin admitted, he admitted, he said at one point that if he wasn't in a happy relationship, none of his characters would be. <laughs> and you can just watch him. And, and when, once he leaves the show, people start hooking up. Yeah. And that's not an accident. And I actually, I, I, we'll probably go down a rabbit hole on this if, you know, we should not go down a rabbit yeah. hole on this if you don't want to. But uh, the one romance that does sort of happen in the West Wing is, I think, a really poorly done romance. Like, I actually think Josh and Donna are a disaster of a couple. <laughs> um, and I know that I will get hate mail for that, because I get it on Twitter a lot for saying it, but it should have been Josh and Amy. It just should have been. They were definitely much more suited to each yeah. other. Yeah. They were a power couple. They but, would have ended up as, like, But the heart wants cards, what the heart but... wants. Oh, whatever. <laughs> oh, whatever. I'm glad that I got a romance <laughs> writer to say that. So... Love isn't everything, Barry. So what... <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think do you think that the state of the romance market is good right now do you think i think romance is re- i mean it's remarkable how rich romance is, yeah. is. i mean I, there are some big issues in romance right now yeah. um we need to we need to do a better job all of us of being more diverse i mean well, and that and that's an argument being that's a discussion being had across the length yeah. and breadth of publishing right now. i mean it's particularly challenging no, I'm sorry. It's a particular discussion in romance yeah. um, because there are, for example, hu- hugely popular subgenres, right? Sports, for right. example, right? Where, you know, every hero is an NFL, a star NFL quarterback right. and the ca- the cast of characters is just fully white. Right. <laughs> right. And it's like, what? That, that looks like the world on my TV. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think it's particularly challenging in romance. I think, um, I think we... It's a. I per, I'm personally thinking a lot about this right now because um, I've been doing a lot of work uh, rereading the old, the the original romances, which yeah. is something that not a lot of genres are able, not a lot of writers are able to do. Right. right. Um, I feel like YA is another genre where you know you could sort of pinpoint the early texts and yeah. say like I'm going to go back and I'm going to read The Outsiders and like yeah. think about why that was so powerful for young people. But um, you know I have gone back and I've been rereading all these texts that, you know, notoriously have, um, you know, rape in them. They're, you know, they're, they're very problematic as feminist texts. And I've been thinking a lot about them as feminist texts and realizing that we haven't, we've moved the needle so much as a genre on, you know, how we think about women and the way that they're treated in the world and the way that they behave in the world and the way that the world treats them. Um, but we're not, we have not moved the needle intersectionally at all. Um, Mm -hmm. and so we're leaving behind a lot of women of color and we need to do better. And I'm not the only one who feels that way. Sure. Um, 
I feel like that's our next hurdle. We've been around for 40 years and we've, we've been working hard for feminism, but now we need to start thinking about intersectionality. Right. So, but do you feel that's sort of from an artistic perspective, although of course it intersects with, with the business, but from a business perspective, do you feel like, do you feel like the industry knows what it's doing? Do you feel like, I mean, to the degree, any industry knows what it's doing. I mean, you, you, you said before that romance leads the rest of publishing yeah. by a couple of years. Yeah. I guess what I'm saying, just as What's I asked, next? just as I asked you before, what do I have to look forward to with yeah. my baby? What do I have to look forward to in publishing? Yeah. So romance is the wild west right now. You know, 50 shades blew the doors off. Yeah. Uh, it was unsettling. I think for a lot of people to have something come out of, you know, what was ostensibly self-publishing in that it came from Twilight fan fiction, right? right? And I think a lot of people weren't expecting that world to to take over romance. Right. And for several years, that, that was, I mean, Fifty Shades launched, you know, a billion billionaires. Right. And, um, and that was a real surprise for people. And because she had such tremendous, that Fifty Shades lady had right. such tremendous success. I can't believe you don't even know her name. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Um, because she had such tremendous success, um, a lot of other writers have followed in that footstep. And they're writing a very interesting hybrid of, you know, what's what's called new adult. I mean, I yeah. think it's what's particularly interesting now, though, with self-publishing and indie publishing is that anything goes. And I think that's a, that's a challenge for traditional publishing, um, traditional romance publishers right. as well. Editors just don't know, you know, what... They don't know what's going to sell. They can't make, you know, stepbrother romances or, um, you know, motorcycle club romances sell as well through traditional. Um, yeah. Because it's narrow casting. It's, yeah, but I mean, these books are consistently in the top 100 on Amazon. I mean, if you go right. to the top 100 paid books on Amazon, you're going to see the lion's share of those books are romances. Right. And they're indie pubs because they are kind of crazy bananas ideas. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because as you know, I mean, I self-published a novel a couple of years ago and it was because traditional publishing wasn't sure what to make of it and didn't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's interesting that you bring it up that you, that you're talking about them not knowing what to do with it because every now and then I will get a comment on this book of mine unsold where somebody will say something like, um, Oh, you know, he's a YA author and he's writing an adult book for the first time and there's way too much sex in it. Just because you can put sex in doesn't mean you should. Mm -hmm. And that really, that blows my mind for a couple reasons. One of which is clearly they never read Boy Toy. Like I have no problem putting sex in YA at all. I will do it. Um, But the other thing is, is this idea of too much sex and people can't see, but I'm putting scare quotes around that. Like, is there such a thing as too much sex? Like, like I, who thinks there's too much sex? I'm I'm asking you. Certainly not on Amazon. I don't think. Um, I mean, I certainly get every once in a while I'll get, I, there is sex in my books. Um, and on the spectrum of romance, right. With one being virtually no sex or no sex, they close right. the door. One being Amish romance, which right. is real. Yeah. Um, and 10 being, you know, heavy erotic romance. Right. Um, I'm probably a 
six or seven. Yeah. Um, that isn't when I started writing six years ago, I was higher. I was a higher number for sure. Yeah. Books are getting sexier for sure. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't think so. I mean, certainly people like women like reading about sex. Yeah. Men like reading about, I mean, well, no, but he, see, people this is like the thing. Sex. This is the thing though. <laughs> Most of the critics I have are men. Yeah. Who are saying there's too much sex in this book. And that just really amazes me. I don't know. Because maybe it's because maybe we're going back to some sort of, you know, primitive men are visual, women yeah. are... Well, that, that's know. the thing. Like, when I originally... And you read the book, so you know what I'm talking about. I did. And what, I actually didn't feel like it had very much sex in it at all. So. Yeah, compared to... Compared, I mean, but what I read is yeah. a different thing. And that's what I thought. And honestly, you know, when I was writing it, I was trying to do a lot of things with the book. But one of the things I was doing was I was like, oh, I'm writing erotica for men. <laughs> you know? I thought, oh, I'm writing erotica. And, and I guess what I've come to realize is that men prefer porn. <laughs> well, it's really interesting. <laughs> you know? And you, you know this, um, but I really felt like what you wrote was Californication. But, you know, it was like if you took Californication and you made it a novel about a writer, yeah. I mean, which Californication is about a writer. Yeah. I mean, like, it just really felt like if you're a Californication fan, which I am, you know, you would love this book. And it, and it, but it really does. And I wonder Californication if Californication is super dirty. Yeah. And I wonder if it just came down to, well, as you said, men are visual and it's like, they'll I watch mean, Californication. Like, as a feminist, I sort yeah, of Yeah, but that, you know but what? It's not but you, wrong, I guess. It's not wrong. I mean, you know, you got science backing it up and you can argue that, that you don't like it and you can say that we should do something about it, but you know, you might as well tell people not to be blonde. Yeah. You know, it, it's... You know, if it's if it is true and the science seems to back it up, then th- what you do is you figure out okay, how do I work with that as opposed to working against it? And, and in this ca- in the case of this book, I was working against it apparently. Maybe so, there, yeah, it's yeah. a weird thing. I mean, it's a weird thing. I did love that book, so you all should <laughs> Thank read you. it. I do, yeah, I but I, I don't understand the there's too much sex. Like I don't. I mean, uh, so as a writer. Because this podcast is about writing, I do feel like so. I write, I write sex professionally, right? Um, and it feels I'm keenly aware of the idea that people think romance novels are filled with gratuitous sex, right? And um, sex really complicates a relationship, sure, uh, in a number of ways. Yeah. You know, if you think about the first time you ever have sex with somebody, right. the first time you have sex with your current partner, like having a baby, like sex that results in a baby, all yep. sorts, like sex, should, sex complicates a relationship. Suddenly your, your relationship is very different in the second, in the, in the day after. Right. Um, and so it should complicate things. It should yeah. not be on the page gratuitously. And I think, um, that can be a struggle for yeah. readers, but I also think some people are just prudes. You know, this is my, this goes back to, back to me being irritated all the time on Twitter about people who send me hate mail about, I write historical novels Yeah, set in the 1830s and my heroes swear. Right. And they swear because people have been saying swear words, the F word, the other four letter words since the 1500s and before. I remember I wrote, I, I never published it, but I wrote a Western. So it was set in like 1890. Yeah. And, um, and I had my characters dropping the F bomb and there were some early beta readers who were like, did people say that back yeah. then? And I'm like, Oh my, people have been saying it uh, yeah. you know, since, since, like you said, since like the 1500s. Well, I mean, it's crazy. It's really interesting. Cause we, I just recently watched Deadwood for the first time. Have, uh, you, have you watched Deadwood? I've, yeah. I mean, and I adored every bit of it. Yeah. Um, 
and I rem- and I read some criticism later about how you know people were really upset because I mean when it came out it was it it used more uh, more swear words in the first episode than like any it was the yeah. most obscene ep- episode of television ever right. um, and there was a lot of discussion about historical accuracy and what they've used it and certainly there are some combinations of words right. that are used in in that show that wouldn't have that are not historically accurate but it's fully i mean but guess what so the f- what i mean seriously <laughs> because because whenever we and you, you write historicals for a living, and I know you strive for great accuracy. But the fact of the matter is, you're never going to be 100% accurate. No, and you're... And, and you shouldn't be. You correct. shouldn't be. There are things you've got to massage for the sake of your story. And I think people need to get over this idea that that fiction has... To, if you want your fiction to be 100% true, go to the nonfiction section of the library. Mm-hmm. Don't come over to the fiction section. I've talked before about, um, you know, John Grisham is my hero. I read a book of his where at the end of the book, um, his author's note starts, none of this stuff is true. <laughs> He's like... Is there a is there a federal penitentiary at this in this city in Mississippi? Beats the hell out of me. If there is, it's a coincidence. I invented it. Yeah. You know, does this law exist? Nah, not really. Made it up. Needed it for the story. Right. And I'm just like, thank God, because it feels like ever since the Da Vinci Code, uh-huh. and that's where I I place the marker. Everybody wants their fiction to be 100 percent true. You know, everybody's like, oh, he did so much research, yeah. and it's like, you know what? So what? But it's actually really interesting because. You know, as somebody who writes historical fiction, um, I get a lot, I get dinged a lot by readers for telling a truth, for using truth, yeah. and they just don't believe it. Well, that's the other problem. Women would never behave this way. That I re- would never happen. Yeah. And I can point to primary source material and say, like, women absolutely lived this way. I ran into that all the time in the Killers series. Yeah. Because people watch Law & Order and think they know how crime crime works and they think they know how law enforcement works and they think they understand DNA and they would get very upset because you know I had it taking three weeks to get DNA back from the lab which is actually pretty damn fast yeah and they're like oh no they would have known by already because the DNA it's like no they wouldn't have yeah people think they know things because they see TV they watch TV TV is wrong yeah. TV. They, they've only got 44 minutes to tell you a story. They have to take a lot of shortcuts. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's the same thing. I'm sure people, you know, have watched some, you know, movie set in the 1830s that was made in the 1970s. And when we didn't understand that much and people weren't all that progressive anyway and interested in representing things. Right. And so they, and research wasn't right. as easy. It wasn't and, they, as... and they think they know how it is because they saw a movie once. It drives me insane. Sure. It drives me crazy. I mean, I think also there's an issue of writing in 2016, right? So I write in the 1830s and there are a lot of problems in the 1830s Mm -hmm. that still exist today, but are more overt. And I have to write, I write with a lens of a modern writer and a modern reader. And so I'm not going to write about slavery the way that, you know, people might've talked about slavery in the 1830s. Like, of course I'm going to write about progressive abolitionist, you know, theory. Um, or, you know, I'm often, I, I often have to save characters. And so, you know, you there's no germ theory in the 1830s. Like right. if somebody gets shot, they're probably going to die. Right. But I can't have that. So, you know, throwing in a progressive character who, you know, ha- there were certainly people who right. thought about germ theory yep. then. Um, it's a really interesting 
balance to strike. And I mean, you must, you must have this too, not writing his, historically, but you still have to imbue your, you imbue your characters with your moral code. Sure. Sure. I mean, you know, when I write somebody like Billy Dent, I deliberately throw my moral code out the well, window. Well, of course, but you the know? message of the book isn't. Well, the message of the book isn't serial killing. Hey, everybody is good. go kill Yeah, people. no, that's certainly not the message <laughs> of the book. Um, you know, but I always try to, whenever I write a, whenever I write a character that is not me, and most of them are not me, I always just, I try to disengage my personality and my morals, and I sort of go, all right, if I were this person, how would I actually see the world? And that works for me on a number of levels. I mean, I've gotten praise for example, for the way I wrote Howie, who has hemophilia. And I've heard from a lot of people with hemophilia, but also people with other uh, diseases or illnesses, rather, um, who have said, wow, like you really did a really good job getting into the head of somebody with that. Or Connie, for example, who is a black female teenager, which I'm not, <laughs> never have been. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of people who are like, wow, like, how did you do that? I mean, I had this one reader who was convinced I was secretly black. Um, I sent a picture. I'm like, no, really? <laughs> I'm a random, <laughs> random white guy. Um, but, you know, it, it's that, that same element where you just sort of go, okay, I'm not me. How would this person see the world? Uh, and, of course, you can't disconnect yourself completely. There's always going to be some element of you in it. But you just try to distance yourself as much as possible, put yourself as far away as possible, and let the character take over. Um, and I think, you know, that that's probably a, a problem I would have writing historical fiction, um, is that it would be very difficult for me to put in those progressive characters, because there would be this part of me going... Well, how realistic is that? And of course they existed. Of course they did. And, but then I start going, okay, what are the odds that my character would happen to meet somebody like this? And then I would get all tangled up in that. Right. Um, so that, that's probably why I've avoided doing that sort of thing. Um, but no, it, it, it's complicated. And it's, I, I, I think one of the things that clearly you're hinting at here and that we all run into as authors is you get those readers who read something you wrote and they assume you believe it wholeheartedly, you know, mm -hmm. like you say, you're writing about slavery or, you know, I'm writing about a serial killer and you get these people who think, well, if you wrote it, you must believe it. It's like, mm -hmm. no, I'm telling you a story. You know, it's interesting that you say that because, um, so I'm, I just recently reread a book called The Flame and the Flower, which is widely believed to be the, it, well, it's not widely believed, it is. It's the first modern romance novel. Yeah. And um, when I say that, what I mean is it's the, you know, romance is built obviously on the backs of, you know, Austin and, and the Bronte sisters and Hare and a number of other, you know, classics, so to speak. But it's the first one that opened the door to the bedroom. Right. And, um, so there's sex on the page and it was written in the, in 1972 and the hero is, I mean, it's very problematic on a number of levels. The hero rapes the heroine three times in the first 70 pages. Like, cause once just wouldn't do, um, he th <laughs> the explanation in the, from the author in the book is that he thinks she's a prostitute. So I guess that's, okay. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Um, as you do, it's, I mean, it, there are a lot of huge issues that, yeah. I mean, are, are issues that romance has had and. I have a lot of feelings about why that was such a common place occurrence in right. romance at the well, time. I mean, that's, I mean that was like a trope in movies and TV and books that yeah, anyways, the woman who resists, but then gives in. I mean, it's, and it's, you know, you know, it's, it's sort of overt slut shaming in the sense of, um, 
the theory is like if you enjoy it, you know, women are women right. aren't supposed to give it up, right? right? Good girls don't have sex, right. but if you're forced to have sex and then ultimately you enjoy it, there is a moment where, you know, you're allowed. Essentially, the book is giving you permission right. to like it. Um, but rape is a really interesting thing in media of the time. General Hospital fans right. will remember that Luke and Laura began with a rape. You know, these kind of things were real. But my point about this is that ultimately the hero so through confluence it's a 500 page book right eventually they are on a ship and he's an american ship's captain who owns a plantation in the south Mm. um and we get there and it's 1799 and remember the book is written in 1972 which is not that long ago right and you know it's a portrayal of happy slaves yeah and he's a kind master sure and this kind of thing is really i mean it's flabbergasting for me yeah um as a writer um, and I could never write. This is this is why I would never write an American set historical because <laughs> I don't steer clear of that. Because I don't know how you handle it. It's the it's the thorniest, most complicated yeah. thing, and and it's particularly challenging because as a writer, and look, we just had this conversation, and you and I are very different. We're different kinds of writers too, right? Where I don't a hundred percent buy the well. I can throw my own views out the window and write a story, and that's why I don't write. You know, that's why I write what I write. Right. Um, but it's very difficult for me to read this book and think about a woman who I have long you know, admired as like birthing a genre, right? My books would not exist without Without, her. Yeah, sure. And thinking of her being able to uh, essentially writing, writing a slave owner without ever even nodding to the idea that like, this was a bad thing, you know, in ensuing years, there are, there is a very common trope in, in not just romance, but in American Southern historicals where, you know, the hero, whoever it is, is like such a good guy that he actually doesn't have slaves. He's right. the only one right. in North now. Carolina yeah. who's growing tobacco without slaves, yeah. which is also historically like completely bananas. Right. So, um, but at least in that you see the the author sort of have the real life, real time moment of saying, like, I can't turn At least the understanding. Like, a slave owner yeah. can never be a hero. Right. Um, and it's really tricky. Yeah. It's really tricky just, you know, because this is the world we live in. Yep. And you have to say something. And she yeah. doesn't, right? It's 1972. She writes this book. She doesn't say anything. She was a middle class white lady who was in Minnesota. Yeah. And, you know, wrote. she was a housewife. She wrote a book. Yeah. You know, while her husband was at work. Right. Which also is just bananas. Can you imagine? <laughs> like, okay, we're really Hey, I, I write books while my wife's at work. I know, but that's not what I mean. I mean, like, you have you have a computer. Like, yeah. Can you imagine writing, you know, on carbon paper? Oh, I know. Typing what must have been, it's a 500-page book, so it must have been like a eight or 900... Manuscript pages. Page manuscript. Yeah. Typing it out, and then, like... Shoving the whole thing into an envelope, your only copy, and mailing it off to some random address in New York. Oh, I did mail off copies of things back yeah, in the day. Yeah, but you still had a computer. But I still had a computer, You weren't yeah. typing on a typewriter. Yeah. I mean, it's bananas. Yeah. And they have, you know, Harper let me have access to a lot of the original texts of this book. Because it's actually the, um, it's an anniversary year for Harper. And, um... And uh, the editor, the letter that she gets back is written. She doesn't get the the call that we all talk yeah. about, right? She gets a letter in the mail from Nancy Coffey, a senior editor at HarperCollins, who says, we think this book is really great. It needs a little bit of work huh. structurally, but we're willing to pay you $2,500 with, you know, 4.5% royalties. $2,500 in 1972. <laughs> 
is not bad. Yeah, they sold 2.3 million copies of this book in like three years. You could, I mean, even in just the advance, you could probably you could probably buy a car. Yeah, probably buy two cars in 1972. I mean, and if you're housewife in Minnesota, right. in, and I mean, I've. So I admit I have Google mapped this house. Yeah. Like this is not, she clearly was not like a very wealthy housewife yeah. in Minnesota. I mean, I'm sure it did. It changed her life. Of course. I mean, and wow. then she went on to write, you know, yeah. dozens of other books, but I just, you know, I'm, I'm the first person to say that if I wasn't published, I probably wouldn't write. Mm. Um, and so I just, it's amazing to me, the level of commitment that you hear from these early writers who literally wrote, oh, they yeah. typed their manuscripts and they shoved them into yep. envelopes and they just hoped they got to where they were going. Right. I always think of like, like John Milton, who was blind and couldn't see and had to, had to transcribe and like was writing in meter, you know, <laughs> like wasn't just writing amazing. prose, was writing in amazing. meter, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I have kept you long enough. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, everybody, you can visit us online at writinginreallife.com. Check out the show notes, leave a comment, send us an email. You can also follow us on Twitter at, at WIRL Podcast. And uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a rating on iTunes. Give us five stars on iTunes. We, we love the five stars. Thank you all very much. Morgan will be back next week. We'll see you then. Bye.